With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Hey, for those of you who follow us on Instagram and Twitter, you probably already saw we recently hit 100,000 downloads. Thank you, thank you, thank you to each of you who has shared this, who has reviewed it, who listens week after week. We could not do this without you. And to celebrate, we are releasing some swag. We've got a mug that has the logo on the outside, perfect for your morning cafe con leche or a matcha latte. We've got these canvas pouches that I love for keeping in your purse. Great to keep yourself organized. Also a glossy sticker set because it's basically a podcast rule that you have to have a sticker set. I put mine on my laptop. It already looks so much cooler. We love making this podcast and we also really care about quality and that means that we use studio time, we use a sound engineer and all that stuff costs money. So if you love this podcast as much as we do and you want to continue to see it grow, we would love your support. Check out all the swag at latinatolatina.com slash shop. Again, thank you so much for listening and for loving the show. I'm a true believer in gender equality, in respect, the enormous value of multiculturalism. And at the end of the day, when when you do things that are right, it's because you do them with conviction, with principle, and with love. When Maria Fernanda Espinosa Garces became president of the United Nations General Assembly, she was only the fourth woman to ever lead the international representative body. She is making the role her own, pushing an ambitious agenda and constantly thinking about how she will leave her mark. Madam President, what an honor. Thank you so much for being here. No, Alicia, I'm delighted, delighted to be here. Really very, very happy to be able to have this conversation with you and share a little bit of my experience and uh, the challenges, you know, being the president of the UN General Assembly. The challenges are what we're here for. But first, (laughs) I want you to take me back. Were you the family diplomat? 
Well, not really. I, 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 yeah, I, I have to be very honest. I was the nerd of the family. I was uh, the academic. Mm-hmm. I was very much into studying and reading. I was a poet mm-hmm. since my early ages, and I decided to become a linguist first, and then a political scientist and anthropologist. I specialize on Amazonian studies. Mm-hmm. I lived and worked with indigenous peoples in the Amazon in my country. And then uh, I became a geographer, started to work with uh, international organizations. I spent several years working for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is based in Switzerland. And I started my international work. First Latina fourth woman to preside over the UN. How did you cultivate your leadership style, given that there weren't many women for you to look to and say, well, I'll just do what she was doing? I try my best to be to be very open, very, uh, you know, in a listening mode, in a learning mode. I repeat again that I have an extraordinary team. And every morning when I wake up, I say, well, uh, today it's all going to be yet another day of learning. And I think that attitude is really very good. It's, yes, you have to be in a learning mode, but also in a leading mode. And to say, you know, I have every day, you have to make the difference in a little detail to improve the way we do things at the UN, even if it's small, to change sometimes the stiffness of the bureaucracy Mm -hmm. at the UN. We've been, you know, quite successful so far. When I organized for the first time this event, Women in Power, I invited all female presidents, heads of state and government to come to New York and to share with younger female leaders, I mean, their struggles, but also their experiences as women in power in this mentoring mode that I think is so necessary. You've served your country in various roles. I wonder when you were a minister of defense, so often when we talk about women in leadership, there's always this question of, is she tough enough? Did you have to prove that you were tough enough? Were there questions about whether or not you were tough enough? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And especially at the beginning, it's really sometimes for us, for women, it is very unfair the way we're treated by media, by public opinion, by our sisters, you know, women, you know, Mm -hmm. in public office, uh, women from the opposition. When I was appointed Minister of Defense, it was unbelievable. You know, no one would look at my professional credentials. And there are headlines in Ecuadorian newspapers saying a poet to become (laughs) the next minister of defense. What experience that she has? Well, I'm a geographer. I have experience and background in geopolitics. And uh, you, you don't need a military person to lead the Ministry of Defense, and I proved myself. I had to work very hard, especially, you know, to bring down all the the, the prejudice uh, and the very uh, machista-oriented environment of the military. And believe me, the, the last day of my tenure... I had the most respectful, incredible relationship with Mm. all the generals and almirantes, how you say that in in English, very respectful, horizontal relationship. They really respected me. But I had to prove myself that I, I really needed and I had to show that I was fit for purpose. How do you then foster that sense of cooperation? If people hadn't been able to do it for three years, what did you do that finally carried it over the finish line? 
Well, first of all, I, I was co-leading with uh, the ambassador of, of, of Norway at the time. More than 10 years ago, my phrases were, uh, please, I mean, to the, to the member states, to the governments mm-hmm. of the world, just please think about the people that we represent, uh, the people that are suffering out there, that are, that are expecting us to deliver. And uh, I was uh, privileged enough to come 10 years after as president of the General Assembly with exactly the same sentences, but also the theme for my presidency, which is to make the United Nations relevant for all. So that comes from a long way, not the idea of relevance, the idea of accountability, of bringing the United Nations closer to the people and the people closer to the United Nations. Right. right. I think when you talk about climate change, especially for my generation, which will be the generation Mm -hmm. that is left contending with this issue in a very real way, there's a question of Where do you even start with a challenge that is that big? I organized a presidential and ministerial level event on climate with a special focus. And I think that is very important because what was the point of entry was an intergenerational responsibility. And we had 80 uh, young leaders from around the world come to New York, sit and talk with heads of state and government, with ministers to say, let's do this together. You have a very, very important role to play. And it's not about blaming our generation. And, And we should be blamed. Our generation should be blamed. But it's not only about blaming and shaming. It is about collective action. So these intergenerational dialogue between youth, women, the elders, it's extremely necessary. The other group that you have situated at the core of this conversation is Indigenous peoples. And my question to you is how you make sure that the people who are most affected by this also have a role in determining what the solution looks like. Well, we do have at the UN several mechanisms. We have the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues that meets every year in April. So we are about to receive uh, hundreds of Indigenous representatives uh, in New York at the UN. Uh, There is a climate platform for Indigenous peoples that was created under the UN Convention on Climate Change. I've been working with Indigenous rights, uh, you know, a big part of my life, and I know how much quality improves when you bring the voices of indigenous peoples to the discussion, to the table, and to the decision-making process. Can you tell me about one of the formative experiences you had during the time you were living with indigenous communities in your home country? My first experience when I recently graduated as a linguist, I was hired to assess the bilingual education system of, of a southern, the Shuar group at the southern part of Ecuador. And I, I was a vegetarian at the time. And when I came, you know, for the first time to one of, of the indigenous communities, I realized that some are still hunter-gatherers. So you ate the game of the day. And at that time, I had to decide whether I wanted to work with and for indigenous peoples or to remain a vegetarian. Of course, I took the decision to eat the monkey meat, the snake meat, and all the meats that you can <laughs> you can imagine. And it was transformative just to understand that cultural diversity is one of the uh, most important wealths of humanity. It's, it's a source of knowledge, extremely important knowledge, especially, for example, when you're speaking about understanding better livelihoods, respect for nature, 
nature-based management decisions. These are knowledge systems, science that is extremely sophisticated. That's why whenever we have to take decisions on climate, on adaptation, on resilience building, Mm -hmm. on disaster risk reduction, on how to be prepared to the big events that happen because of climate change, to cyclones, major floodings or droughts, these communities, indigenous peoples, they have knowledge for thousands of years and how to better adapt, how to respond, how to ensure food security. I even learned about taxonomy. I mean, they have this huge wealth of, for me, for example, the color green. For Westerners, green is just dark green or light green. No, (laughs) yes, but for them, I mean, they had like 10 words just to describe the diversity of greens in the tropical rainforest. And it came with conservation decisions. So I have a great respect for indigenous science, indigenous knowledge, ways of coexistence, family values, the respect for nature. And I don't want to be an essentialist because there are so many challenges also within indigenous communities, but just to open up my mind to different cultures, different worldviews, it was such an extraordinary transformative experience. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? (laughs) They do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. If you are thinking about having kids one day or wondering if that is even possible, then I want to tell you about Modern Fertility's at-home hormone fertility test. 
I recently took their fertility quiz and explored their timeline tool. It helped me think about things that I don't always want to think about, like how many kids I want, when I plan to have them, and how my hormones play into those decisions. Modern Fertility is really convenient. They ship a kit to your home and a physician reviews your results, which arrive in a few days. Similar tasks could run over $1,000 at a doctor's office, but Modern Fertility gives you access to this information for $159. In addition to your kit, Modern Fertility connects you with a fertility nurse. You can also join their weekly webinar and participate in their active online community. Most of all, Modern Fertility offers peace of mind by giving you knowledge and information to help inform some of life's biggest decisions. Tests are conducted in a CLIA-certified lab, and affiliated physicians and clinical advisors work at top fertility clinics. Visit modernfertility.com Latina. Take their fertility quiz and get $20 off your Modern Fertility test. That's modernfertility.com Latina to take the fertility quiz and get $20 off. Modernfertility.com Latina. One of the biggest challenges for women who want to lead is that moment where you say, well, what about me? So I want to know how you made the decision to run for president. Because it is an elected office. Yeah, it is elected, an elected office. Well, I have to be very honest with you. I was the foreign minister of Ecuador, and uh, we were facing difficulties to agree uh, on a candidate for the position of president of the General Assembly. When I say we were the Latin American and Caribbean group, because the presidency rotates, uh, you know, yes, uh, in regions. Region. So next time is going to be Africa and then uh, the Western European group, etc. So it, it was the turn for Latin America. At the end of the day, we had two candidates and, uh, you know, several presidents around the region, they started calling the president of Ecuador and say, you know, why don't you consider, uh, you know, presenting a candidature? Ecuador. And uh, the president suggested that I uh, consider that option that would be an honor for Ecuador. And he suggested my candidature. It, it wasn't something that I was looking for. I had a big responsibility as foreign minister. But then I decided, you know, why not to accept the challenge and to say, yes, I think it would be good to be only the fourth woman in 73 years of the UN history. And uh, in, I'm also a, a strong believer in multilateralism and the role of the United Nations. For someone who doesn't know, can you break down what multilateralism means? Sure. It's a big word, you know, multilateralism, very complicated. But what it means is international cooperation. It means collective action. It means solidarity. It means an international rules-based system. It means that for the global challenges we face, there is a need for strong international leadership. It means that when you want to tackle climate change or terrorism or the world drug problem or migration, you need uh, to really unite and decide because the challenges we face in this very interconnected world are common to humanity. And then we need to work together. So multilateralism is about 
joint effort, collective action. And the house, the main house of multilateralism is the United Nations and the General Assembly because it has universal membership. So we are all there. The 193 countries are represented there. So it's it's a privileged place to take the right decisions for humanity and with humanity. Very focused on the issue of gender parity. What does that vision of equality look like? We shouldn't take uh, gender parity for granted. Uh, If we look at the numbers, uh, they're really not right. Uh, When you see that uh, out of 193 uh, countries, uh, we only have 5% uh, female presidents, 5% female prime ministers. Out of 193, only 20 around the world. If you look at parliaments, the average around the world is 25% female, which means that 75% of parliamentarians are men. Mediation and and peace processes, where 3% are female mediators. Mm. Our peacekeepers, I think it's 5% peacekeepers of our peacekeeping operations on the ground, only 5% are female. So the numbers are not right. And what is the dominant theory on barrier to entry? Well, it depends on the areas, but I would say that there are some structural bottlenecks there. And one of them is is just prejudice. It's about, uh, you know, thinking that, uh, you know, women in general are not fit for purpose, especially when you deal about the role of women in peace and security issues. And I was a minister of defense myself. I know what it's like. It's prejudice, it's discrimination, it's lack of trust. Discrimination is naturalized, it's part of the roles in society. But we, we need to continue the struggle. I was uh, among, uh, you know, the, the, the group of people thinking that, you know, the quota system was not necessary. Now I've changed completely m- mm. uh, my mind. I think that the issue of numbers count. But at the same time, I'm, I'm a strong believer that we need to have gender parity, the right numbers, but with quality. We need to make the difference in the way we lead and the way we participate in different areas of society. Does the UN itself have gender parity? Oh, we've done, you know, great progress. We have a secretary general, Antonio Guterres. He has proclaimed himself as a feminist. And, <laughs> well, and take he him. is. Yes, and he is because uh, in uh, only two years, he was able to have, you know, the senior management positions of the UN. 50% of them are women. Mm-hmm. And it was him taking that decision. And if you look at female ambassadors at the UN, out of 193, 42 female ambassadors. Not bad, but uh, I don't know what is the percentage, but it's not, uh, you know, we're not there yet. Uh, But, you know, 42 uh, out of 193 was much better. When I was ambassador of my country, we had 25 female ambassadors out of 193. And it's not only about arithmetics and numbers. It's about, you know, the value added that that we bring to the diplomatic scene, uh, let's say. So I think that we need to continue continue the the struggle. One of the issues the UN has been focused on is the question of migration. What do you think we in the United States get wrong when we think about immigration? Today, we are facing serious conflicts around the world, shortages, hungry people. The, The numbers are increasing, unfortunately. People that are escaping from droughts, from floodings, from climate related disasters. 
and they have to go and, you know, look for a future for themselves and for their families. So it's part of world dynamics. What we have done at the UN is to come up with the Global Compact on Migration, which is basically a pact, a referential document to encourage cooperation, burden sharing between countries of origin, of transit and destination. The compact calls for orderly, safe migration. And, and I think that we need to govern migration. We need a proper migration governance uh, that encourages cooperation and dialogue. And, and I think that countries more and more are realizing that, you know, migration is by nature a transboundary issue that requires international right. cooperation. I think that what the UN is really worried about and working on that is to avoid human trafficking. Yes. Uh, this is a major disaster, major crime. It's a major crime of $4 billion per year. Wow. And uh, the victims of human trafficking, you know, 72% are women and girls. So uh, this is something that we need to avoid at all costs. Since most of our listeners live in the United States, I have to ask, do you think the international community's understanding of the United States as a cooperative ally has changed during the Trump presidency? Well, I think that the multilateral system and, and the United Nations uh, has to also be flexible and adapt to dissent to, for one reason or another, you know, some countries are not prepared to join or be part of or support. And we have to deal with that as well. You're a great diplomat. I don't know if anyone has ever told you. <laughs> what is your advice for a Latina who wants to pursue a career in diplomacy? Well, I would say that uh, the context is much better than what it was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. To always, you know, have... Uh, have uh, principles and values that guide your career, no matter if it's in diplomacy or in any other career we might choose. And, and this may seem, you know, simplistic, but to, to have clarity on the principles and values that you stand for. And that helps. That really helps. And, and, and be very much aware, in, in my case, wherever I am, whatever role I have uh, professionally, I've always worked hard to make life easier for the generations to come. When, when I passed the gender equality policy at the Ministry of Defense, that was like a big step forward. And I established a quota system and affirmative action for women military in Ecuador. These are the things that, you know, remain. But it's not because it looks good. It's because I'm, I'm a true believer in gender equality, uh, in respect, in uh, the enormous value of multiculturalism. And at the end of the day, when, when you do things that are right, is because you do them with conviction, with principle, and with love. And I'm, I'm a true believer on, on the transformational power of, of love. And I don't want to seem like these books, uh, you know, the best uh, bestseller books on, on self-aid <laughs> and all that. But, you know, at the end, it pays off. It, it pays off. And sometimes, uh, you know, when you do things, when you're angry on, uh, or when you, I mean, at the end of the day, it does not work. So conviction and passion and, and principle and love, it does help. Madam President, what a good note to end on. Thank you so much. No, I thank you. Thank you very much, Alicia. It was a, a privilege, really. 
Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle. Now the podcast is owned and executive produced by Juleka Lentigua Williams and me. Maria Muriel was the sound designer on this episode. We want to hear from you. Tell us who you want to hear from and how you're making the show a part of your life. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.